to return with you this morning to our series on Matthew chapter 11. You remember we've dealt with a big part of that chapter already. This morning I want to look at the verses 25 and 26 with you, but in the context I want to read the verses 20 through 30. 20, I think... Yeah, 20, beginning to read verse 20 to the end of verse 30, which is the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 20. And here we hear God's word as follows. Then he, the Christ, then began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they would not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And we heard all about that the last time we were together. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And our text for this morning is framed in the verses 26, 26, 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here with me in Salem and Bowmanville this morning. Before we go to the sermon proper, I want to take a moment and remind you that the theme of this entire chapter has been about the, the failure of men and women to repent of their sin and embrace the gospel. Jesus was sent by God into the world to bring so great a salvation to a lost mankind, and yet rather than rushing to him with willing and eager hearts to inquire of the way, the world had continued to reject the message and the messenger. And in this context, the haunting words of the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew verse 23, ring down to us, down over the centuries. O Jerusalem, how many times have I not tried to gather you as a hen gathers her chickens, but you would not come. You would not come that you might have salvation. And it is that complaint of the Christ that stands out in bold relief here in this entire chapter. We see myriads of people rejecting him. 
we see innumerable masses failing to acknowledge him as the Holy One of Israel, and we hear Christ foretelling of their eternal ruin for rejecting the gospel. Woe to you, said the Christ. It would be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it would be for you. Had Sodom been privy to the blessings granted you, they would have believed. But you, you denied the Christ, and I will deny you before my Father. And all of that is played out so far in this chapter, but now in the words of our text, a certain shift or shifting of emphasis takes place. Jesus has lamented over the tragic unbelief of the crowds. He has warned them. He's urged them to repent and believe. He has shown them the very flames of hell. But the stubborn, calloused hearts of men and women remain cold and indifferent. And now, <coughs> here in our text, Jesus, as it were, stops. And he, he, he reflects for a moment. He ceases from his condemnations and warnings. He overviews, as it were, the entire situation, and in these particular circumstances, he does the unexpected. He prays. He prays. He, makes, he, he, he looks at the foolishness of the men and women there before him, and then he looks up to his father, and he makes a startling statement in the form of a prayer. He testifies to the wonderful thing that God has done. We hear his prayer. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. I want to administer God's word here this morning using as my theme Christ's prayer for the discrimination of the gospel. Christ's prayer for the discrimination of the gospel. We want to see, first of all, that Christ directs his prayer to the sovereignty of God. Then secondly, we want to learn that Christ thanks God that he's hidden the gospel from the wise. And finally, we will see that Christ thanks God that he has revealed the gospel to babes. So Christ's prayer for the discrimination of the gospel, he directs his prayer to the sovereignty of God. He thanks God that he has hidden these things from the wise, and he thanks God that he has revealed these things to babes. People got a great doctrinal truth is taught us here with regards to the sovereignty of God. But notice with me that these truths are taught us as we simply stand and listen to the prayer of Christ to his Father. And that, I believe, would have to have implications for us. It would be my conviction that we would be well served and we would learn from Jesus that although it is not necessary to impress men with our biblical knowledge in our public prayers, we do, however, foolishly waste golden opportunities to witness to the world when we fail to boldly set forth the great truths of Scripture in our public prayers. Great scriptural truths and even doctrines can and should be taught in our public prayers. Then notice with me also the address of the prayer of Christ. Listen to how Jesus addresses his Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And notice with me the title he gives to God. Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 
an entire sermon could be no an, an entire series of sermons could be probably gleaned and taught from those few words father lord of heaven and earth but think with me if jesus having the intimate relationship with which which he has with his father if he feels the need to address god with such reverence should we not learn from his example Jesus is God's only begotten, eternal, natural Son, and yet he knows how to approach his Father in prayer. Should we not learn from Jesus, and should we not imitate him in how we address God in our prayers? Capture this with me. To acknowledge him as Father comes easily upon our lips, but to confess him as Lord of heaven and earth, that does not always follow as easily. And we need to consider that. It is indeed true that God is our Father in Jesus Christ. It is indeed true that we are his sons and daughters by adoption. It is indeed true that we may and we must come to him as Father, our Father. And it's also true and a great privilege that this relationship of children with their Father elicits from <coughs> our hearts and minds a certain familiarity. After all, it's natural that we speak much more intimately with our Father than we would with a stranger or even a friend. However, what we need to learn from Jesus here in this context is that all such familiarity must still be tempered with confessing Father to be also Lord, Lord of heaven and earth. And congregation, it's important that we understand this. It has become the burden of my own pastor's heart that oftentimes we condition ourselves to see God as not only a father and a friend, but at times this intimacy causes us to lose sight of the fact that we are dealing with the awesome holiness of the King of Kings. How often have you not heard a public prayer offered by someone which has been offensive to you in your ears because of certain liberties taken in an unhealthy intimacy? How often have you not heard someone who prays to God and addresses him almost as his buddy? In congregation, such prayer is not only offensive to us, it's offensive to the Lord. It's an assault on the holiness of God. We need to learn to maintain a healthy balance from the example of Jesus given in his own prayer. Our prayers must begin with Father, but then we must know that we are in the presence of a Father who is Lord of heaven and earth. And when we carefully, respectfully address him that way, then the necessary equilibrium has been achieved between intimacy with the loving Father and the so essential reverence and awe required when we approach a holy, thrice holy, sovereign God. We need to learn here from Jesus' example that we may not approach God's awesome throne and speak to him in the same manner as we would a neighbor. No, he is Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, and we must approach and address him with reverence, with awe, and with respect. We hear Jesus' prayer. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. And I thank you, Father, that you have revealed these things to babes. But now, people of God, we need to see the connection between the opening words of verse 25 and all of verse 26. I thank you, Father, that you have done these things, for so it seemed good to you. When we then paraphrase the text, we could read it to say, I thank you, Father, that it seemed good to you 
to hide the things of the gospel from the wise and reveal it to babes. People God, simply put, Jesus here acknowledges the sovereignty of God in the matters of salvation. Jesus acknowledges the sovereignty of God in the matter of salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, follow me for a few minutes. We know that as a consequence of the fall in the garden, all men, all women, even all children, everyone in the entire world comes into this world at enmity with God. Man, as he is born, is dead in sin and trespass. He is alienated from God and without divine intervention will remain so into all eternity. Man comes into this world inclined by nature to hate God and his neighbor. That's what comes naturally to him. He is alienated from God and he is unwilling, no worse yet, he is even unable to return to God. We know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We know from our Bibles and from Lord's Day 25 that the word of God and especially the preached word of God is the instrument used by the spirit to bring men and women to faith. And we know from our Bibles and we've seen that also in this chapter that the gospel is preached indiscriminately throughout all of the world. But, but, but we know also from our Bibles and we know from our own life's experiences that the gospel is accepted and believed only by some and it is at the same time rejected by others and it is now to that great mystery that Jesus here addresses himself even so father it seemed good to thee what does that mean well, we read that God had revealed the gospel to the simple and has hidden it from the wise. And now understand this well. Follow me carefully. It is not so that some people who may be lacking some intellectual skills, that they are favored. It is not so that the intellectually challenged or the simple-minded would stumble upon the truths of the gospel and that somehow those of great wisdom, great intellect and stature, the wise, they would forever be frustrated in their ability to understand it. It is not so that acceptance or rejection of the gospel depends upon someone's intellectual ability or lack of it. No, no, no. What Jesus wants us to know here is that the Father planned it to be that the gospel would be obscure to the wise and clear to infants. In other words, since God is sovereign, he determined that the knowledge of the kingdom, or if you will, he willed it to be that the gospel would and could be understood by intellectual infants. And if the clever, the intellectual giants also found it, they would find it in the same way as did the people of lower stature. In other words, embracing the gospel message would not depend upon one's intellectual or even spiritual ability to understand it, but it would be those and only those whom God in his own good pleasure chose to reveal it. We need to understand that. All the more so since it is a doctrine that has fallen out of favor by much of contemporary Christianity and even by many who claim to be reformed Christians. People have got the subject matter before us here is one of revelation. God has chosen to reveal or not reveal the gospel according to his own will. But now it's necessary for us to define for a moment what we are to understand when we say revelation. What do we mean? 
when I say it's a matter of revelation, I don't mean discovery or, or if you will, arriving at a conclusion as a result of a process or of thinking. Revelation, or if you will, uh, is not the end of a process by which a man, after much reading, after much studying, arrives at a certain truth. No, no, the con- contrary, to the contrary. Revelation is something that is granted us. It is a gift of God. Tragically, it is often suggested that if only, if only we can get people into the right environment, if only we can get them into a, a Bible study, if only we can get them into church, if only we can discipline and disciple them to study the Bible, then somehow, as a result of that study, somehow then the gospel will become clear and will be embraced by them. But congregation, that's not the language of the Bible. In fact, the very opposite is true. If you're even only slightly familiar with biblical history, you will know that throughout all of the Bible, although the truth was available to them, men and women did not seek after truth. In fact, the opposite was true. The scripture gives us the record of men and women turning their backs on God and instead making idols for themselves and worshiping another God. But, but, but then God God goes after them. God interrupts them. God tells them something. God shows them something. He touches their hearts. He reveals to them Jesus Christ. That's revelation. It's an activity of God, from God. We're reminded again here that salvation from beginning to end is entirely from and to God. And it starts with God. Salvation starts with God revealing himself to fallen men and women who are dead in sin and trespass and therefore cannot find him. God goes to them. God opens the eyes and the ears of their understanding and he reveals himself to them. But, but people of God, we need to dig even deeper here. You see, the key to understanding and unlocking our text is found in verse 27, when Jesus says, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. Jesus teaches there that, that there is no knowledge of God apart from him. In other words, Christ is central. Christ is essential. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father apart from me. The content of Revelation was that he, that Jesus of Nazareth, that he was none other than the Son of God come in the flesh and sent by God to deal with the sin of a fallen humanity. That's something less, that's nothing less than the gospel. And remember with me now, That was what John the Baptist and Jesus himself had been holding before the Jews of our text there in Palestine. And it was that truth that had offended them. And then we read they left him and they followed him no more. My dear precious people, God, capture this with me as we begin to approach here the very heart of the gospel. Jesus had declared himself to be the Son of God who had come into the world not only to teach and to work miracles, but to die on the cross. He came to bear the very wrath of God on that cross of Golgotha. And it was there that he was punished for the sins of all who would believe on him. Simple as that. He taught that God in Christ was making the way of salvation open for men through the cross. 
He can now offer peace and pardon to all who believe these facts and believe in the Christ. That's the content of the revelation. And that now what was what God had willed, God had chosen, God had determined to keep hidden from the wise and reveal to babes. I thank thee that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. And my dear people of God, that Christ actually thanks his Father for hiding the things of the kingdom from a segment of humanity. Initially, it startles us. We can hardly imagine that. It boggles the mind. It seems to contradict, it seems to fly in the face of all that we have learned about the gospel and it faces us with a perplexing question that Christ would praise God for revealing revelation. That we understand. But to also thank him for concealing it, that's inconceivable to the mind of natural man. It's hard for the mind of a fallen man to conceive of a kind and loving savior actually praising the Father for intentionally hiding knowledge that is absolutely essential to salvation from certain individuals. Our finite minds fail us when we attempt to reason out what to us seems to be unreasonable. But, but, but we need to read carefully here for a moment. We need to tread carefully here for a moment. What we have before us here is indeed a perplexing question, and yet it's the truth of God. We're reminded here that our human, sinful, and finite minds are limited and cannot be compared to, nor can even begin to understand many great mysteries which God has chosen to keep hidden, even from those of us who have received the things of the kingdom. We are reminded of the words of Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Job chapter 11, can you, O man, search out the deep things of God? Romans 9, 20, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the things formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Does the potter not have the power over the same lump of clay to make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor? Stay with me now. The concept here is urgent. What we see here in our text is that once again, Jesus divides all of humanity into two groups or two classes of people. Repeatedly we have seen that in this chapter. Repeatedly he has done that. We saw it most clearly, you remember, in that little parable of the two groups of children in the marketplace. He does that again here now. And he places in one group the wise and the prudent, and then the rest of mankind he defines as babes or infants. And then we learn that God resists the one class and grants grace to the other. How now are we to understand that discrimination? People of God, it can only be resolved within the realm of divine sovereignty. Jesus here admonishes us to let God be God and let him take whatever way he pleases to glorify himself. Let God be God and let him do what seems good to him. Our sin-darkened fallen minds can give no reason as to why Peter, a fisherman, should be made an apostle and not Nicodemus, a Pharisee and ruler of the Jews, even though he believed in Christ. Even so, it seemed good to thee, Father. People of God, what needs to be captured by us here, what is taught us here by Jesus here, is that it was not in any merit of our own that we were shown mercy, 
but it was purely God's own good pleasure that distinguishes the wise from the babes. It is God who makes some to be wise and others to be babes. My dear precious saints of God, we need to keep in mind here several fundamental principles. First of all, God is sovereign. He works out his plan according to his own will. Secondly, there are certain things given us in scripture which we in our present condition cannot fully understand. In the fullness of time, these things will be made clear to us, but at present, we need to guard ourselves from trying to reason out things which God has chosen to keep hidden from us. Why then did God choose to reveal to some and hide from others? We humbly confess we don't know. Even so, Father, we thank thee that it seemed good to thee. We don't know why, but there are a couple of things that we can and must know in this context. I thank thee, Father, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. The question we can answer is who is it now that are here identified as the wise and the prudent who will find it difficult to understand the truths of the things of the kingdom? Pay close attention for the answer. It cannot be that, that God frowns upon intellect or learning. We may not understand here that all the wise and prudent will be rejected by God because they are wise intellectually or even wise spiritually. No, to hold that view would be to reject a great gift of God. You see, wisdom, intellect, the ability to learn, to study, these are all great gifts of God. And so we do not learn here that God devalues these things and that therefore the things of the kingdom are hidden from men and women of great learning. No, what we're here taught, first of all, is that it was the wise, that the wise have no special privilege when it comes to knowledge of the kingdom. Religious truth does not come to us through intellectual effort or ability, nor does it rest on a foundation of scientific or literary genius. In other words, in other words, the child and the philosopher must find God's truth in the same way. And that way is open to the intellectual babe as well as to the intellectual giant. In other words, in other words, those who have much intellectual knowledge have no advantage in discovering the truth of God or discovering God himself. What we understand here is that when Jesus here speaks of the wise and the prudent, he is referring to those to whom he has given intellectual abilities. He has granted that great gift more so to them than to others, but, 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 rather than using their God-given intellect to praise God and to glorify him, they trusted in their own wisdom and their own ability. And, 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 and they, in spite of having received much wisdom from the Lord, pride became their downfall. They look no further than their own wisdom, and therefore God justly denies them the spirit of revelation. And then though they hear the glad tidings, they are a foreign and a strange thing to them. God is not responsible for their ignorance and their error, no. Had they used their wisdom, their God-given wisdom, had they used their God-given wisdom to honor God, God would have given them knowledge of the better things. But, but, but because they used their intellect 
for their own ends, because they used their God-given intellect for their own ends, because they trusted in their own wisdom, God has hidden their hearts from spiritual understanding. What we see here is what we read in James 4, verse 6. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And we in our day have seen the truth of this demonstrated. For example, when men with great scientific genius use their intellect to deny the fundamental truths of God's marvelous creation as revealed in Scripture, then God closes the minds. God closes the mind, and God's revelation of the Christ also remains hidden, and we will never be found, and will never be found by such men and women. I remind you of our own history of that book, The Fourth Day. You'll remember that in it, one of the professors of the Christian Reformed Church denied the creation story. And we know that today, that same man has denied the faith altogether, is now a total unbeliever. We see exactly what, what Jesus has been saying. But what then of the babes? Who then, or better yet, what then characterizes the babes of whom Christ speaks? Well, capture with me the metaphor used by Christ in our text. Physically speaking, and also according to Matthew 21, babes are, they are sucklings, or they are nursing infants. They drink milk, not solid food, and they have not yet advanced very far in learning, so to speak. And so what we need to capture here in this metaphor given by Christ is that physical babes are utterly dependent upon others. Spiritual babes then are those who humbly confess their own nothingness, their own emptiness, their own helplessness, and their own inability to provide anything for themselves. Spiritual babes then are recognized by their acknowledgement of being totally, absolutely aware of their complete dependence upon the might and the mercy of the Heavenly Father, that Lord of heaven and earth. Such babes, they go to him trusting from him that from him they will receive all things necessary up to and including the way of life so that enjoying salvation full and free they may live lives of gratitude for his glory. That Christ praises his father for these things now becomes a little more clear to us in this context. People of God, I said earlier that Christ constantly divides mankind into two groups and we see that so clearly again here. Jesus distinguishes the wise who trust in themselves and he separates them from the infants who trust in God. We learn here again that in order to enter the kingdom, in order to obtain salvation, it is necessary to look away from oneself and to lean on the everlasting arms of Christ. That's the path that must be trodden and that way is open to the educated and to the uneducated alike. It is open to the intellectual giants and the intellectual handicapped. It is open to rich and poor, young and old, male and female, slave and free. Oh, stand in amazement with me as the way that leads to salvation has been pointed out in verses 25 and 26 of our text. It is open to all, but it is open only to those who humbly trust in the promise of God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. My dear people, God, it's not for us to attempt to explain why some receive and believe the gospel while others do not. The sovereignty of God in this matter is a mystery beyond our understanding, but one thing does stand out clearly in the text. 
Those from whom the gospel is hidden are generally those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Let us guard against the great sin of pride and self-esteem. Guard against confidence in human intellect and natural wisdom and earthly wealth or in our own worthiness or goodness. Nothing is more likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him from seeing Christ as his own pride. I urge you this morning in accordance with our text to pray for and to cultivate a gentle spirit of humility. Let us seek to know ourselves aright. It has been well written that the beginning of the way to heaven is to feel that we are on the road to hell. No man knows the Son but the Father. Neither does any man know the Father except the Son and he to whoever the Son will reveal him. That now is what this revelation of salvation brings to those with a humble, teachable spirit. It brings a knowledge of pardon. It brings assurance of forgiveness. It brings reconciliation with God. Such revelation to those who receive it in childlike trust and humility gives knowledge of God, and it reveals the Son in all of his glory. What a way of salvation. Who but the Father, this Lord of heaven and earth, who but him could have planned it that way? Throughout all of this chapter, we have been confronted with masses of people who heard and saw the Christ. We heard Christ preach to them and we saw stirrings in the hearts of men as that powerful word became active in their hearts. But incredibly, we saw the masses continue to reject and resist the Christ and ultimately they would, they would scream in rage, crucify him, crucify him. But we saw also a small handful fall on their knees and worship the Christ of God. Are you among them? Are you among them? The gospel preaching separates the sheep from the goats. It was so there in Palestine on that day. It is still so today in this very place, at this very time, from this very pulpit. The preaching of the word of God separates the sheep from the goats. The question we have considered this morning was, how or by whom was it determined? Who would believe and whom would reject the revelation of God? We heard the answer. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden Christ from some and revealed him to others. Why? Even so, Father, it seemed good to you. Let me close with a little story told of a gentleman who visited an institution for people who could neither speak nor hear. And this man was asked to speak to residents by the resi to the residents by writing on the blackboard since they could not hear him. And his heart was overcome by compassion as his eyes scanned this group of handicapped people. Not knowing how to begin, he struggled for an opening. And finally, finally, he walked to the board, took up the chalk, and he wrote a profound question. He asked of his audience, why do you think it is that you suffer from a hearing and a speaking impediment while I am able to speak and to hear? 
and the eyes of everyone in the room was filled with silent tears. The answer to that question was a mystery to them. Their wisdom had no answer. Then a little child, a young man, with countenance beaming, got up, went to the board and wrote, Even so, Father, it seemed good to thee. He had understood the sovereignty of God in that matter. The same all-encompassing sovereignty of God with regards to the eternal destiny of every man and woman is taught here by the Christ. May God grant to us hearts as those of the little child, enabling us to humbly receive and believe the things of the kingdom. Even so, Father, it seemed good to thee. Shall we pray? Father, we confess that God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain.